Hi there. This is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices would have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode number four, The Dead Man, published in Sir in 1965. The Dead Man is a story about an Indian peasant who is going out to collect water in the morning, and a crocodile attacks, kills him, and drags him into the underground lair. And then he comes back, crawls out of the lair, and returns to his home. Well, that's a succinct synopsis. Very straightforward, right? As all wolf stuff is, yes, very straightforward. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm first up on themes and ideas, and I'm not entirely sure what to start with in talking about themes and ideas. I think that there are a couple of very Wolfian things going on. However, this seems, at least on a first reading, to be a bit of an outlier for a wolf story, in that it seems somewhat more straightforward than we're accustomed to it being. And so the first theme that I thought about talking about was how do we know things and how does our character know things and what are his priorities? Wow. First of a five-part episode, I guess. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> okay. What did you want to start with then? Well, in our intro, we say, have you ever considered that all of your choices are what have brought you here? And our narrator or our perspective character mm -hmm. is going to get water and he's going very, very early in the morning because he doesn't want to do it with the women. Yeah, he's embarrassed to be seen out there with them. Right. He's embarrassed to be seen carrying water because it's a woman's job. Mm -hmm. But the women of the family have been injured by the crocodile and by a jackal. Yeah. And by injured, you mean dead. Well, one is dead. So his sister-in-law has died taken by the crocodile, and his wife has a swollen foot from being nipped by a jackal that was sniffing at the baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then his mother is too old. Yeah. It so, doesn't say what she has, but it indicates that she's infirmed in some way. Right. So she's limited. So he's up very, very early in the morning and going out to get water before anyone else is, which of course means that he's all alone in the course of the events of the story. So there is the Brahmin who is at his door waiting there. Yes. And the Brahmin did get up before him, and he's already been out to the river ford and through a marigold wreath into the water. Right. So the Brahmin had a purpose for being up early, which is to attempt to propitiate the crocodile Mm -hmm. with the sacrifice of some flowers. But it still leaves our perspective character getting out there early and alone and thinking the entire time about the crocodile and yet careless enough to slip into the water and be taken. Yeah, because the first time 
he goes out with the larger clay pot. He's very careful. Yes. And through his mind, the thoughts that are coming up is the it, he's looking for the logs because he knows the crocodile can pretend it's a log. Right. He knows that he needs to watch out where not make the water murky. So right. he's being very careful. And then the second time when he brings out the smaller jar, the one that's chipped on the lid. Yes, I was going to point that out. <laughs> okay, yeah. He's not as careful and he slides and he makes the water murky. He stirs up some silt. And then that's when the crocodile grabs his leg. Right. So I was just struck by the contrast between his meditation, his care, he's thinking carefully through the risks, and yet his actions with the second water pot don't follow that care. Yeah, no, that's true. So it's a matter of he knows things, but he doesn't internalize them, or he knows them but doesn't act based on them. So there's some disconnect between his awareness and his actions. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair statement. And then later in the story, he's acting and unaware of how he's acting, right? So in your summary, he's taken by the crocodile, um, hidden away in the crocodile's den, and then he wakes up and comes back into the village. But what's revealed at the end is that he's a walking spirit, and he doesn't seem to be aware of the fact that he is a spirit, even as he's able to exit the crocodile den as only a spirit might, until the Brahmin essentially announces that he is a dead and restless spirit and casts the powder at him. Yeah, the saffron powder. Yes. So when he is taken by the crocodile, there's a, a line and several lines in here that I think kind of, it's like the pivot in the story that you've pulled out. It says, for a few seconds, he struggled before instinct or reason or the passivity of India and the East made him swallow hug his chest with his arms, and submit, feeling the cold of the river loose his rag of turban and play in his long black hair. Then, as his heart pounded and his ears swelled and the trapped breath tried to burst past his throat and locked lips, he fought again, ignoring the pain already creeping into his numb leg. Well, I think those sentences are striking for a number of different reasons, but what are you getting at? The, the first part, where it's, is it instinct, is it reason, or is it passivity? Is he careless because he's passive? And I don't necessarily think that's what Wolf is saying, but it could be. Like, is he submitting because reason or instinct? Because in some sense, the crocodile is viewed as a god of the river. Right. So is his instinct to submit to a superior being or is reason telling him that, oh, this is the God's way? Well, what's interesting about what you're saying about the crocodile being a God, earlier in the story, he and his fellow villagers, ignorant of the comparative religious texts of the schools, would have cheerfully killed their Magar if they could. And so it, it's already been pointed out that he is in some sense, ignorant of the religion, even as he is ignorant of the religious context that he's operating within or not reasoning about it. No, I'll grant you that. Yeah. 
I guess I hadn't quite approached it from that perspective. Part of what I was thinking was that there was a hierarchy of gods, and this was a local god, and so it's like, yeah, and they can be disposed if they're being inconvenient was kind of... Right, so a view of a local religion that acknowledges the limitations of a local god and does not exalt a local god to it an all-powerful position, does not mistake a local god for an absolute god or an almighty god. Yeah, I think that's the framework I was operating in. And that makes a lot of sense. I didn't really like the passivity of India or the East line. It feels like something that could be published in 1965 that wouldn't be published now, but is operating well within sort of the exoticizing of the East literary tradition that Wolf is reflecting on. Yeah. Internally, I cringed a little when (laughs) I read that line too, but I don't know. This could be me overreading things, but I think because he tucks his arms in and then he fights again, it says he ignores the pain and starts fighting again. And I almost felt like Wolf was saying that, yeah, they're like the passivity of the East of the whole oriental vein of literature it may be us misinterpreting things right so that he offers that reversal in the very next sentence yeah yeah Yeah. i think that makes a lot of sense although it did strike me as uh, characteristic of a lot of early 20th century literary fiction (laughs) yeah some of those can be very jarring to read because we're not used to it Well, that sort of careless tossing off of a stereotype where the author might be incredibly sensitive to personalities and individuals and drawing complex characters, but is still quite comfortable generalizing about a large population in a way that we're just not culturally comfortable with anymore. Yeah. So one thing that I kind of wanted to point out before we get too far there in the beginning, it's his sister-in-law, but it's his half-brother that is married. So it's his half-brother's wife that's taken. And then his mother had shrieked and cried that the gods intended the destruction of the wives of all her sons. So we get that she's been married twice. So her first husband is presumably passed on. Yes. And then this would be her second husband, who is not in the story. And I think the implication is that he also has passed on. So we're kind of zooming in on a family that has had a lot of hardship. Yes, and that lament about the wives of her sons being gone seems at least to imply some fear of losing the family over which she has authority, but also leaving her alone without descendants. So that if the wives are gone, then her sons will not have more children And with all of the loss that they've experienced, they might be effectively wiped out as a family. Yeah, that's true. My objection that came to mind is, well, his son's alive at the end, but it's one grandchild that's alive and with all the suffering and pain. Well, yeah, and that's just a reality of cultures that have higher mortality rates is that you have to have higher birth rates to offset the tragedies, although individual families can be wiped out pretty rapidly if sickness or animal attacks (laughs) (laughs) come roaring through. So I'd like to move on to talking about the scene after he's taken by the crocodile, because here is where I feel like we're getting a hint 
of some of the future narrative gift of Wolf. Okay. I think this is very evidently an early story, not in the sense that he hadn't written things before this, but he hadn't polished and found his voice, I don't think, just yet. But Mm -hmm. the description of the man trying to see, he comes back to himself and he can't seem to move his head. Yeah. And he also can't seem to move his eyes. They had, quote, forgotten their function so that he could not direct his gaze to right or left. But he's somehow still able to strain to see even without the motion. And so you get this very vivid sense of someone trapped in paralysis and somehow managing to function within that paralysis. And of course, we find out later that the whole time he was dead, and this is his spirit somehow moving within his body. But the description gives you a very visceral, very physical sense of what's happening. Yeah, because it says he strains and he can feel the at one point the vertebrae in his neck kind of move barely. Yes. yes. And I'm like, oh, that just, yeah. Well, it smacks of sleep paralysis where you're unable to move and unable to wake yourself up. Yeah. Well, and we get a perspective shift in there too because he's looking up and there's the blue sphere or ball that's up there. Right, which is the chimney of the cavern. Yeah, but by the way that it's written, we're almost kind of led to believe that he's viewing the earth from a distance and he's looking down on it. Yes. And there's a line in there, Maya... Or Maya? I'm not entirely sure. I think I would pronounce it Maya. Okay. Because it's the illusionary world. So we get that quick snap shifting perspective where to us as a reader, we're kind of like, oh, he's looking down on the earth. But then the shift is, no, actually, he's under the earth. Right. Under the earth and looking up at the sky Mm -hmm. and seeing a leaf flutter back and forth. Yeah. Terrifying and claustrophobic. Yes, and that's even before you get to the description of the fetid smell of decomposing meat. Which is another interesting thing because his sense of smell doesn't kick in into the next paragraph. Right. And it describes the buck that's there and it's the gases are... Right, um, Uh, distending the belly, as ruminants do. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a buck there, he's there, and of course he sees the body of his brother's wife there. And then we move to the last scene, which is that he rises and begins working his way out through the chimney, not sure even as he did it whether he laboriously pushed the earth aside to enlarge the hole or merely drifted through and up like smoke. Which I feel is some of that unsettled wolf narrative. Like later wolf would have just let us assume he was crawling out instead of giving us the options there. Right. He wouldn't have given us that hint. He would have left it. Yeah. And then he goes back down the village street. The sun seems brighter than it's ever been. He doesn't cast a shadow or scarcely casts a shadow. And then it's the baby, his son, that sees him first and acknowledges his presence. I think that's something that'll come up later in Wolf, the children being more spiritually aware 
than adults and the concerns that they have choke out that awareness. Right. His wife sees him, the Brahmin sees him, and then the Brahmin gives his injunction. Do not speak to it. It is seldom wise to hear what they will say. Then he took up a handful of saffron powder from a brass bowl on the floor beside him and flung it into the air, calling upon a name which brought dissolution and release. The end. The end. So I have two questions. Excellent. About this last section that you just read. One, it says that he can't speak because he looks around at his family in the circle and he finds that he's unable to speak. And then the Brahmin says, do not speak to it. So part of my question is, is this a invitation type thing where he's not able to speak in the land of the living unless they invite him into that or... I don't know if it was right, but that was my assumption, that okay. he could not speak because he had not been spoken to, invited, invoked, but that he would have been able to if they had initiated conversation with him. Okay. I mean, if we go back to your earlier comments about him not knowing and his knowledge, like the Brahmin's statement that it's, <laughs> it's seldom wise to actually hear what they have to say. The fact that he doesn't even really know he's dead, like what value is he going to add if he speaks? Right. He wasn't wise enough to avoid death. If that's something to be ashamed of or if that's something to diminish someone's authority, mm -hmm. he wasn't wise enough to avoid a pretty obvious and accidental death. His brother's wife's death is explained in that there hadn't been a crocodile in the river in this generation. But he goes and is caught by the crocodile, knowing that it's there. So he's demonstrated foolishness. Yeah. And it might be unfair of me as a reader to think that he's also foolish for going very early in the morning because he's embarrassed to be seen carrying water. But I'm adding that to the he doesn't seem particularly wise pile. <laughs> <laughs> I'll grant that. So I guess my second question around that, do you have any idea what the name spoken is here? Because it's a capital N. I assumed that there was some context, Hindu belief that I am unaware of, but I don't know what it is. Okay. I did do some research on it. Shocked Pikachu face. <laughs> well, I came to no conclusions because there are I think I probably would need a degree in comparative religions just to understand the religious context of India. And there are multiple schools and each one of them have different opinions. Well, and I think that's why I didn't do research on it. I taught a two-week introductory course on Hinduism to high school students at one point and feel like I memorized some vocabulary and little else, because it is quite confusing to the uninitiate. Yeah, I don't know. I feel bad just leaving that unanswered question hanging there, the name, but this... I think we can see the intent behind what he was saying, because it is a capital in the name. So invoking a god of dissolution and release. Yeah. I think that it's fair to leave it, at least partly because... There's a lot more to talk about <laughs> in the sense of context for the story. 
This is Wolf's first published work, officially published or paid publication. Yeah, other professionally than, published. Right, other than his college newspaper stuff. And so I think talking about that, that it was his first professional piece, what it was published in, when it was published, it's obvious or maybe not so obvious. I think he acknowledges its influences. There's a lot more to unpack here than the name. Yeah. So do we want to talk about Sir Magazine? Well, we can talk about it. We can also talk about how uncomfortable I was having it in my house. <laughs> well, Is... I'm not in the habit of ordering copies of nudie magazines and leaving them lying about on the kitchen table. True. The thing that I was shocked by, though, is just how tame the magazine is. It almost seems silly, like scrolling through an internet news feed in the celebrity or entertainment category. I feel like I've seen way more like shocking things in there than... I think Wolf calls it in an interview or in an introduction something like a poor man's playboy, but... My impression was that it's the good man's playboy. <laughs> I feel uncomfortable even saying that, but it is almost sweet. It's almost sweet. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> there are only a handful of nude photographs in it. The women look like real human beings and not contrived models. And it's very lightweight. It's not a large magazine. There's not a great deal of content nude or otherwise, <laughs> uh, a handful of stories, a couple of letters, a college sex survey. <laughs> and one of the letters is from a minister. So again, it's yeah, it's very tame. A lot of cigarette ads. Yes, it? and cigar ads. Yeah. Which the cigarette ads seem the more toxic thing, not the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. nude photos. <laughs> So I guess he was paid $60 for the story by Sir Magazine, and he called it, it was bottom tier prices. Okay, so. so $60 in 1965, which is about $2 million US dollars in <laughs> 2023. No. Yeah. So that was bottom tier pricing. And that makes sense. This is not a large or prominent publication, and so... It makes sense to me that it would not have been considered a huge success. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And your comment about it not being a prominent magazine, this was a difficult one to trace down. Right, not one that there are lots of copies floating around of. Yeah, so one of them. So this is the October 1965 issue, just to clarify there, because some places on the internet, it doesn't say what month that his story was published in. So it's October. And there's a few from 65 on archive.org, but they're not the ones with the wolf's story in them. So only one came up in the time that I've been looking for it. So It is interesting, though, getting a hold of the magazine and having a look at the context, because the first page on the inside, there is a series of four columns that have editorial commentary on the stories that are included in the magazine. And the editorial commentary on Wolf's story is first. The story appears beginning on page 12, and they give the little biography of Gene Wolf, 
uh, <laughs> details that we're all familiar with, that he studied mechanical engineering at Texas A&M, left for army service in the Far East, which we all know is the Korean War, entered the University of Houston upon his return, and received his Bachelor of Science under the GI Bill. At the time of publication, he's 34 years old, which I would like to note, I didn't even realize this photo was Gene Wolfe. <laughs> I thought the photo that appeared above this blurb was the editor who was commenting Oh, because it does not look like Gene Wolfe. Just because he's shaved and doesn't have all the wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> well, 34-year-old Gene Wolfe looks positively like an infant next to <laughs> the Gene Wolfe that we all know and love, which is yeah. the big mustache and the you know, balding head and... The giant grin. Yeah, and the giant grin. Here he looks quite serious, moody even. Yeah, emo wolf. <laughs> Not something I think can hold up to any kind of scrutiny. Yeah. He describes writing as a hobby for Gene, quote, a most absorbing hobby, which has proved to be both successful and rewarding for him. I guess they thought that $60 was worth a lot. <laughs> Says that he was born in Texas, and his hobbies are hunting and coin collecting. Oh. Interesting. Yeah, that throws some light on dogs and coins in his stories. Yeah, hunting and coin collecting. I like to know that he is into coin collecting. I don't know that we'll ever get to talk about the Book of the New Sun, but <laughs> as I recall, there's a prominent coin in that story. I think so. I think so. And then the editor said, we liked the sense of immediacy and the ring of authenticity Gene was able to get into his story, and we think you will too. One thing I do want to point out is they spelled his name correctly in the editorial section. They dropped the final E in his name underneath the story title. So, <laughs> Well, I can't imagine that their priorities were spelling authors' names correctly. Yeah. Before I sidebarred us there with that little <laughs> pointless <laughs> trivia that unless somebody has a magazine, they won't know. But going back to your comment about his style and what he's known for still kind of gelling, the fact that there is that immediacy in the story, like we feel we are attached to that Indian peasant as he's going throughout his day. I think that is something that is interesting to see is there in the beginning because it is something that follows through in the rest of his work. I think it would be possible to quibble with some aspects of the story and how it's put together or how it's presented. I don't know that I would, but I think it would be possible to. But you cannot argue that it has the authentic tone of a master writing from a well-imagined perspective. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring up the quibbling about how it's put together because this story is published again in Young Wolf. And in that collection, it's slightly different from the one that's published in Sir Magazine. In what ways? Well, in no ways that matter. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did the heavy lifting of what would essentially be textual criticism. And line by line through the whole thing? Line by line through the whole thing with a pen marking up every little jot and tiddly. That we, so it, there's punctuation changes. There are tense and grammatical changes and sometimes word choice changes. 
but nothing that changes the way the story lands. So little polishings, but not anything substantial. Yeah. So it might be interesting for somebody who would, you know, their interest being how did he compose a story 30 years later when he's going back and uh, polishing it up. But other than that, there's... Yeah, so sort of an editorial approach of what grammatical construction struck him as infelicitous later in his career, but no substantial meaning changing. No. So, and it's, I mean, I only bring it up because... I did the hard work on it, and I don't want all that. <laughs> you to... have to justify that hour of your life. A couple hours. A couple so, hours of yeah. your life. So. Well, speaking of Young Wolf, he does append a short introduction to the dead man in the collection Young Wolf. Okay. And I'd like to read it. This was my first professional sale. Six months before it appeared, I had read an article about crocodiles in Reader's Digest while waiting for somebody in the lobby of an office building. And I combined it with a little half-remembered Kipling. There may be a writer someplace who owes nothing to Kipling, but I'm not the one. (laughs) So, Kipling. I went looking for Kipling stories that had crocodiles in them. Yeah. And I found two. You found two? I found two. The first one I found felt like a dead end because it was in Just So Stories. And it's the story about how the elephant got its trunk. Because... (laughs) The elephant gets its trunk because it goes down to the water and the crocodile latches onto his nose and pulls it out long. And then he has this embarrassingly swollen and elongated trunk, but then it stays long. But it's so useful for picking things up that even though he's embarrassed by the way he looks, he keeps it. And all subsequent elephants have a long trunk now. I don't know why you'd think that'd be a dead end. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Did you find anything that was a a better fit? Yeah, and I suspect it's the same one that you're talking about with the second one. The second one I found. Yeah. At least I found it collected in the second Jungle Book story, which is actually a collection of short stories. So, and it's The Undertakers. Which is a very dark title. The Dead Man and The Undertakers. Yeah, but The Undertakers, the three main characters are... A jackal, stork, it's a carrion stork, and so it has like a bald head, much like a vulture, and then an alligator. Crocodile. Crocodile. Excuse. Wow. I'll leave that in because look at me. I you need mistakes. to be embarrassed by that. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I published an article one time that referred to a pronghorn as an antelope and got an angry letter back from a reader. So <laughs> I knew better. I just wasn't thinking about it at the time. Yeah. I don't know. Why. I was getting ready to say mugger crocodile right which alligator flipped into my head for some reason (laughs) well it might be worth pointing that out because in the dead man gene wolf refers to the crocodile as the magar m-a-g-a-r but that is the hindi word for the mugger crocodile the specific type of crocodile that's found in freshwater rivers and ponds yeah and it's native to pretty much the whole indian subcontinent Right. And according to Wikipedia, mugger crocodiles rarely exceed five meters in length, (laughs) which just seems to be underselling how gigantic five meters in length really is. Uh Uh-huh. As somebody who lives in mountain areas where we get actual winter, the thought of having a predatory reptile that large just chilling out in the river... (laughs) 
seems very strange to me. Oh, yes. Definitely not something we're accustomed to in this climate. Okay, but back to Kipling. So he has a short story, The Undertakers, and one of the main characters, speaking characters in the story is a crocodile. And the other two animals defer to him because the crocodile is the god of the river. So there are some interesting details in The Undertakers because the there's the jackal. So the jackal, he kind of gets in trouble for sniffing around a child and gets kicked. There is uh, marigold wreaths that are tossed out. Right. That detail of the Brahmin casting the marigold wreaths on the river is directly out mm. of The Undertakers. Yeah. So the Bombay mutiny takes place previous to the story, but within the crocodile's lifetime. And he doesn't say grows fat. It says gets his... His girth. His girth? Is that like... His, <laughs> yes. Okay. Gets his girth with from all the bodies that float down the river. And then he has a kind of a wishful moment because he he's an old crocodile, but he'll, he's, he mentions he will still live much longer. During the mutiny, there were women in a boat and they were coming down the river to get away from the fighting. And there were some children in there. And the, one of the kids had his hand in the water playing. He says that he went up to get it, but because he went out of sport and not actually because he was hungry, he's not sure how he missed the child's hand. Well, I think it describes the child's hand as being so small it fit between his teeth. And so he should have gone crossways and gotten the whole arm, and then he could have had the kid. Oh, yeah. No, you're correct there. And then I love how he narrates the next little bit, which is, you can't trust women, you know. And one of the women <laughs> in the boat <laughs> pulls out a revolver and fires five shots at him, which, I mean, to be fair, perhaps you can't trust women <laughs> if they're armed. <laughs> yeah. And then... There's this whole thing about how he can't turn his neck, and it's kind of an embarrassing thing to say because it's like the only one that has scarred or harmed him all these years was a woman that couldn't be trusted. <laughs> with a revolver. Yeah, with a revolver. Yeah, because she hit him at least once in the neck, but it didn't kill him. It just left his neck a little stiff. Yeah. And I guess one thing I should have mentioned is, is that there sitting below a newly built British bridge that has also it has a section for people to walk, but it also has a section for the trains to go across. And they dislike it because now people won't be wading through or animals won't be wading through the river and it's going to be harder to feed. Yeah. So but as the crocodile goes to sleep, the jackal, he can hear people talking on top of the bridge and he says, oh, they're Englishmen. And so there's a, like a scene where they've got essentially an elephant gun with explosive rounds in it <laughs> and they can see the crocodile. And the indication seems to be it's the child that was in the boat. Yes. And he's like... 30 he, years ago, a crocodile snapped at me. Yeah. And so with these explosive rounds, they shoot at the crocodile in the dark. And blow him into three pieces. And blow him into three pieces. <laughs> and then come down and chop off the head so they can get the skull. Well, now he can move his head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it ends with the Englishman say, well, that was a good, I'm glad we waited up for this. 
Right. It's a good thing to stay up all night for or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And then when everybody leaves, the stork and the jackal say the same thing. Now, I wonder if they say the same thing because it was a striking incident or if they were going to snack on their former friend. The implication definitely is there that they're going to snack on him. So, (laughs) Yeah. So there are so many parallels in the two stories. And that makes me think that Wolf remembered his Kipling a little bit better than he thought. Yeah. But it was also inspired by Reader's Digest. It was. Did you do any research on that? I did not. I mean, when I was a child and I was at my grandparents' house, my grandfather kept stacks of Reader's Digest on the back of the toilet. (laughs) And so I have read some Reader's Digest in my time, but I don't think his collection went this far back. Okay. So I did look that up. Shocked Pikachu face. <laughs> and I found the article. Really? Yes. Are you... <laughs> Okay, tell me about it. So this one is difficult to get a hold of. Again. Uh, again, for, for an entirely different reason. So it's from the January 1965 edition of the Reader's Digest. Now, the reason it is hard to get a hold of There's a separate article in there that's about the Oak Island treasure. And because the Oak Island treasure is mentioned in there, which is like one of the first examples of it in the popular conscious in culture, like it's a collectible item. And so even really poor copies of it are going for hundreds of dollars online. And... In the libraries that have archived versions of them, like on the stacks, that's also one of the ones that is stolen the most. Oh, my goodness. Yes. But I did find it, and I have a copy of it. Excellent. So the title of the article is No One Loves a Crocodile by Gordon Gaskill. Okay. I looked him up. Not a whole lot of information on him. He did write a large number of articles, mostly animal articles or nature or like national park type articles. Other than that, not really noteworthy. And the reason why I know that this is the article that Wolf read, I'm gonna, I'll read a section out of it here. So the first part is mostly about Africa and it's about how many people in Africa, they suspect like thousands of people a year are killed by crocodiles. And so I wasn't entirely sure if this was the article I was looking for. But on the end of the second page, it says, when a crocodile catches a large animal, such as a buck or a cow, he keeps it off balance with savage sideways yanks of his head and pulls it down into deep water to drown it. The crocodile can feed at leisure, but he has problems. Impressive as his great jaws are, his teeth are not made for chewing. They serve mostly as clamps. He can therefore eat at once only something he can swallow whole. Small dogs are among his favorite tidbits. If the victim is large, he tows it away to rot and thus become soft enough to easily tear apart. Often he takes his prey into a tunnel-like den that has a below-water entrance which slants up above the waterline, underground, and has an air vent in the roof. It's like, okay, this sounds a lot 
like what Wolf describes in the story. So I got pretty excited there. Then I kept reading. Perhaps the strangest escape from a crocodile was that of a Malawi native who was seized and pulled underwater within sight of his friends. By enormous luck, the crocodile's den was only a few yards away. The victim regained consciousness to find himself inside a dim cavern full of decaying carcasses, with the crocodile laying beside him. Soon the reptile went back to the water, and the African seized the chance to enlarge the air hole above him and escape. It was a long time before his family would let him into his own house. They were sure he was a ghost. Excellent. Yep. You definitely read what Wolf read. (laughs) I have that feeling. The parallels are amazing Mm -hmm. and striking. And you started by talking about, or or the article started by talking about the needing to decompose, which made me think of uh, toward the end, when the sun rose fully, this chamber would become an oven in which decay would luxuriate and dead flesh rise like yeasty dough until the bodies were soft enough to be torn apart easily. He did not connect this with the crocodile's teeth of piercing shape only, unable to grind or cut, or with the short front legs, unable to reach what the jaws held, though he knew these things. <laughs> well, that's remarkable. I'm glad you tracked down his sources. <laughs> we found the Kipling. We found the Reader's Digest. Uh-huh. Did ever a better story emerge from two such disparate and, I don't know, unwolf-like sources? I am not sure. However, I do want to talk about a bad story that came out of this. Oh, really? Yeah. Is this another wolf story? A wolf-inspired story. So wolf is inspired by something as, I'm sorry, limited as Reader's Digest and as a Jungle Book story. And then now this next writer is inspired by wolf. What wonders await? Well, I found a quote where another author... So this is Marianne Allen. She was at a science fiction convention. It says, I went to a science fiction convention where I attended a panel which included the great Gene Wolfe. The question on the table was, what was it about the first story you sold that made it different from the previous stories which didn't sell? The other panelists were all about pacing and dialogue and all that. So answering the actual intent of the question, which is, hey, how do I write a story that will sell? Yes. Okay. So Gene Wolfe said, it had crocodiles in it. (laughs) Oh, no. Yep. That's his answer. So he goes on. He said it wasn't any better or worse than previous stories. And he'd since sold the previous stories by sending them out until they reached the right editor at the right time. So acknowledging the complexity and difficulty of the publication process. But the joke there, oh, I put a crocodile in it. That's what sells. Yeah. So he sidestepped it. The last line in her note here is, so naturally I had to write a story with crocodiles in it. Sold it too. Interesting. I read the story. No offense to her. It's not very good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But in case a reader wants to read a wolf-inspired story, The Damned Place was full of crocodiles, and it's uh, collected in a short story collection 
Lonnie, me, and the Hound of Hell. Interesting. Yes, but the story did not hit with me. It's about the main character and Joseph Campbell. They're on the Nile. Wait, Joseph Campbell of Hero of a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell? Exactly, that one. okay. And she crawls into a literary crocodile, and they travel back in time to ancient Egypt. No. Yes, and she is the god of death and goes into a temple and requests beer and food. No. Yeah, and then God himself literally descends from the heavens and her inside the crocodile, like they've kind of formed and meshed together. They fight God for 40 days. Oh, no. God wins. 40 metaphorical days? (laughs) It says 40 days. Okay. She lasted longer than the Jacob wrestling with was, the yeah, angel. Yeah. <laughs> and so God beats him, and then the crocodile crawls back to her own time, pukes her out on the beach, and Joseph Campbell shows up, is like, see, look, good job. You went through the hero's journey. You brought back a boon. And she's like, what? Oh, here's the beer. And then there's some joke about it being a metaphor and... No, it's actually a simile or something. and it, Oh, my goodness. It's not very good. The only reason I bring it up is because I had to read it. So now you have to listen to me talk <laughs> about it. So You did the research. We have to hear about it. Yeah. Kind of like line editing the two versions. Well, I don't know. I was going to say interesting, but I don't know if that's interesting or just random. It does make me want to try and write a story with a crocodile in it and see if there's some you know, luck in that, that'll be the first thing that I ever sell. (laughs) So are there any other themes or points of interest that you would like to bring up? I can't think of anything. I do have one other thing, and that's just to round out some of the publication history. So we talked about Sir Magazine, October 1965, And we talked about the Young Wolf collection. So both of those are harder to come by. There is a Weird Tales Spring 1988 anthology, and it's a Gene Wolfe special. It has six short stories, and they've also been illustrated by George Barr. And then there's also an interview with Gene Wolfe in there. So, and this story is included in that collection, along with another short story called The Other Dead Man. As Wolf would. (laughs) Yep. And then there is another also easily available anthology called Wondrous Beginnings from 2003. And so that's a mass market paperback. And this one's actually an interesting collection in the sense that it has a bunch of famous authors, it's all the first stories that they sold. And then if the authors are still alive, there's a little afterward or introduction to each one of those. And there's a number of different stories. Are there any other crocodiles? I did not look through (laughs) all those short stories. That wasn't a serious question. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Possibly. Okay. (laughs) Maybe some hidden ones. Right. Some metaphorical crocodiles. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe some crocodiles that are pretending to be logs in the river. Maybe so. All right. Well, with that, as Gene Wolfe says, 
In ancient Greece, skeptics were those who thought, not those who scoffed.